Hey everyone, Pastor Ryan here. So glad to be with all of you. So glad that you're here, that you're watching, that you're worshiping with us today. Today, we are in our second week of our new series called The Way, The Truth, The Life. And this is a series that's focused on the life and ministry of Jesus. We'll be spending the coming months looking at and learning uh, from Jesus. And we're gonna be doing that chronologically. We're gonna be jumping around from, from gospel to gospel. And, and last week with Pastor Cal, uh, we started at the logical place. We started right at the very beginning, right before Jesus kicked off his public ministry, we looked at the temptation of Jesus when he went out into the desert. And we learned uh, in that story, in the life of Christ, we learned the importance of the discipline of fasting, fasting from food as a means of reminding ourselves of, of our need for and our dependence on God. And then this week, we're gonna be moving along with Jesus to the next snapshot of his ministry that we're, we're given a glimpse into. And that's when Jesus chooses his disciples. It's when he calls them uh, to follow him. And the scene uh, that we're gonna be looking at today can be found in the gospel of, of John. Last week, we were in Matthew. This week, we'll be in John. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab those and turn there now uh, to John chapter one. John chapter one is where we're gonna be today. Uh, while you're making your way there in, in your Bible, I just wanna start by, by, by telling you a story. And it's the story of, of how um, I met my wife, Carrie. Um, Carrie and I, we've been together now, um, dating, uh, engaged, married uh, for almost 16 years. Uh, we started dating all the way back in, in March of 2005, but I actually met Carrie uh, back in January of 2005. It was right at the beginning of the spring semester at our school. We both went to this school called Moody in downtown Chicago. And it was, um, I think it was like the first or second week of, of January. It was the first week of classes. And this was Carrie's first semester at Moody. She had transferred in from another school. I'd been at Moody for about a year and a half now. Uh, again, Carrie was just starting and so I'd, I'd never met her. I'd never seen her before. Uh, we were complete and total uh, strangers. And so it's, it's the first week of classes. It's, it's a weekday night and, and I'm at work. Um, at the time I was working at Starbucks as a barista. And so, so there I am, I'm at Starbucks. I'm doing my barista thing. I'm making drinks. I'm, I'm cleaning up the store. I'm talking to customers. I'm doing all those things. Uh, when in walks this one girl that I knew from Moody and then she's, she's right behind her is this other girl again that I'd never seen before. I don't know what it was about this girl behind her, this mystery girl who, who was Carrie, um, but I was, uh, in that moment when I saw her walk in, I was instantly interested. I, I, don't, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was her smile or her haircut or her eyes or, or the fact that she was wearing just a denim jacket in the middle of, of winter in Chicago, uh, but there was, in my eyes, there was something different. There was something special about her. And so I started doing what any college guy in that moment would start doing. I started flirting with her instantly. Like, like right away, I, I was uh, making jokes. I was doing this weird thing at the time where I was winking a lot. I'm not sure why I was winking a lot, but I was winking at her, uh, joking with her. I, I made them some drinks. I gave them to them for free, which was against the rules. I, I think I was just trying to impress her. And, and then that was that. Uh, she had just stopped in to pick up an application. Uh, she was, again, like she was new in town. She was looking for a job and then she left. That's, that's the entire story. That's the first time I ever met my wife. Um, I'll tell you what though, as inconsequential as that story might seem on paper, uh, very, very, very few moments in my life have meant more to me uh, than that one because as a result of briefly meeting Carrie, 
in that Starbucks on Chestnut in Michigan in downtown Chicago in January of 2005. From that moment on, I was determined. I was determined to get to know her, to spend time with her, and then to date her, and then to make her my wife. Now, I'm not sure I went to bed that evening set on marrying her. However, um, I mentioned to a friend that evening that I'd met this really pretty, really interesting girl. And he said to me, I kid you not, with full confidence, the first words out of his mouth, he said, she's the one. She's the one. And then guess what? He was right. She ended up being the one. And that guy ended up being the best man at our wedding. So there's, so there's that. I'll tell you what though, um, getting to that point, getting to that point where Carrie and I were walking down the aisle to, uh, to join our lives together forever in, in, in holy matrimony. It was not, uh, it was not easy. Initially, initially Carrie wanted absolutely nothing to do with me, at least not, uh, romantically. She didn't want to date me. And I, I think there might've been another guy. I think she might've been dating Jesus or something like that, even though she probably wouldn't admit uh, to that. Um, but it didn't stop me. I had my mind set on, on, on going after her and, and, and I was, I was going to do it. And so I, I called her and invited her to everything I did. I mean, everything. If I was going out to do homework, I called Carrie. If I was heading to a coffee shop, I called Carrie. If I was going to pick up my mail at the student post office, I called Carrie. If I was thinking about making a phone call, um, I called Carrie. I was relentless. And over time, um, I wore her down and eventually she relented and we ended up spending more time together. We ended up obviously dating and getting engaged and, 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 and now we're married. And so here's the point though of me telling that story. Um, in order to be relentless in pursuing Carrie and then spending all of that time with her, there were some other things that, that I had to choose to give up. You know, in my pursuit of Carrie, I had less time for friendships. And so those for that season went on the back burner. And in my pursuit of Carrie, I had less time for studying. And so my grades, they, they suffered, but, but I didn't care. Because in my, in my opinion, I was going after something that I thought was better and more rewarding than either of those things. I was going after a relationship with, with Carrie and Listen, I was right. I don't regret any of the effort I put forth in pursuing Carrie for a second. You see, because listen, when you're going after the greatest thing, sometimes you have to leave some good things behind. In fact, that's basically our big idea today. It's this, this is our big idea. If I want to go after the greatest thing, I might have to leave some good things behind. If I want to go after the greatest thing, I might have to leave some good things behind. Not always, not every time, not necessarily forever, but oftentimes uh, going after the greatest thing means leaving some good things behind. Going after the greatest thing wholeheartedly uh, uh, with, with real passion, going after it in a way that is truly life-changing, it's gonna require some sacrifice. And that's one of the main things we're going to see today in the passage we're looking at in John one John, so John chapter one, starting in verse thirty-five. Hopefully, you're already there. Uh, you can go ahead and just follow along with me as I read John one, starting in verse thirty-five. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and and he looked and and he looked at Jesus, and as he walked by and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God." The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, 
Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Here in this passage in John 1, 35 through 51, where Jesus uh, is, is out and about walking, there is a lot going on here. Uh, but, but again, the, the, the big picture view of what's happening here in this passage is Jesus is calling his first disciples to follow him. And as we unpack the, the how and the what and the why of Jesus uh, calling these first disciples, I want this big question. You know, we already looked at the big idea, but I want this big question rattling around in our minds as we take a deeper look at this passage. And it's this, am I a faithful follower or am I a fair weather fan? Would we be honestly asking this of ourselves? Am I a faithful follower or am I a fair weather fan? Am I a committed, loyal, passionate follower of Jesus or am I just a fair weather bandwagon fan along for the ride? You see, I've been, I've been a big Chicago Cubs fan my entire life. And if there's one thing that the Cubs were good at for a long, long time, it was losing. That's what they were called for the longest time, the lovable losers. They had the longest drought in all of American professional sports history when it came to uh, not winning a championship. It was something like over a hundred years until just a few years ago in 2016, they ended that drought and they won a World Series. That was one of the happiest days of my life. But that day was preceded by many, many years of cheering for a team that lost a lot. But I was committed. I would say I was a faithful follower of the Chicago Cubs. However, and, and, and this caused me a little frustration at the time because as the Cubs got better in 2015 and when they were really great in 2016, the, the, the fan base obviously grew because it started to attract a lot of Fairweather fans. Many started to jump on the bandwagon to enjoy the ride and cheer for a fun, a good team. They weren't there when it was tough, but they were there when it was fun and when it was easy. And so the question uh, that we want hanging out in our minds today, the question that we want to be asking ourselves as it concerns our passage here in John 1, 35 through 51 is this. Am I a faithful follower of Jesus? Even, even when it's difficult, even when I don't have all the answers, do I embody, as I look at myself and my life, do I embody what a faithful follower of Jesus is or am I just a fair weather fan? 
And so back to the passage, this is one of the first in-person encounters that people have with Jesus in John's gospel. John's gospel starts, the, the first 18 verses uh, open up with this grand, this, this, this cosmic painting, this beautiful picture of the deity and the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. John describes him as this eternal word. And in Greek, it's, it's the logos. And so as the reader of this gospel, you're going through this gospel and you're already tuned into who this Jesus is. But now in one of the first scenes in real time in the gospel of John, we see the, 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 the characters of the story, so to speak. They're having their eyes opened to the reality of who this Jesus of Nazareth really is. And we see throughout the passage that John is making the identity of Jesus explicitly clear. And it's clear not just to those whose eyes are being opened here in the story, but he's trying to make it clear for us, clear for us as as readers to see who Jesus is. You can look at the passage and and, and see how Jesus is described in this passage. He's called in in verse 36, he's called the Lamb of God. He's called the Messiah or, or the Christ in verse 41, Christ being the Hebrew translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. In verse 45, Philip tells Nathanael that he's of whom Moses of the law and also the prophets wrote. And after Nathanael's eyes are opened, he exclaims in verse 49, he says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus at the very end of the passage, he refers to himself as as the son of, of man which is a reference to the messianic title in the book all the way back in the Old Testament in Daniel, prophesying of the one who would be given complete and total rule over the entire world, over all the nations. And and the compact placement of all of those titles, all of those descriptions of Jesus, they are not here by accident or happenstance or coincidence. John absolutely does it on purpose to make it clear who Jesus is. And for our sake, for our sake, we can simply say, we can simplify it and say this, that Jesus is the greatest. He is the greatest. And as I mentioned earlier in this message, sometimes we're going to have to give up good things in order to go after the greatest thing. And Jesus is absolutely worth giving up good things in order to follow after him in a way that is truly, truly life-altering and life-changing. Now, we, we looked at those descriptions briefly, but that's not all Jesus was called in this passage. For those that were paying extra close attention, I left out one description of Jesus on purpose. And that's what both Andrew and Nathaniel call Jesus at different moments in the passage. And that's this, this title of rabbi. You know, we see it in, in verse 38. We see it in verse 49. Uh, they call him rabbi. And rabbi is an Aramaic word, which John translates for us. And he translates it to teacher. And I think to really understand what's going on in this passage, I mean, why are these guys seemingly dropping everything to follow this Jesus? I mean, it seems so bizarre in our context today. And I think in order to understand this, we need to understand the role of the rabbi. We, we, we need to understand the role of his followers and, and basically sort of the whole Jewish religious education system in, in first century Israel. You see. Back then, kids, they began their religious education through their local synagogue, uh, usually when they're about five years old at what was called uh, Beth Safer. Beth Safer. And, and that's when they started basic instruction on, on the lessons of the Torah, or what we would call the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the local community there, they would hire a, a rabbi and he would teach these classes and he would review the lessons and the kids would read and write scripture. They'd memorize large portions of the scripture. And they did this until they were about 13 years old. And that's when they were seen as, as usually informed and educated enough to the point where they were expected to be, f- sort of fulfill the law 
and, and, and the basic commandments of Torah. And, and once that was over, this was where the paths of many young men, they began to split. You know, for most, they'd be done with their religious education, their religious training, and then they would go on to, to learn their family's trade or they would go on to, 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 to pick up a new vocation. But the, the, best, the best students at Beth Safer, they would go on uh, to be trained at what was called Beth Midrash. And you can basically think of this as like a high school or a secondary school of sorts. And it was also taught by that same rabbi in the community. At, at, at Beth Midrash, they would go on to study the, the prophets and the writings. So they moved beyond the Torah, uh, what was called the Nevaim and the Ketavim. And so in addition to the Torah, you took those three words, Torah, Nevaim, and Ketavim, and, and it created this word Tanakh which is basically what we would see as the Old Testament, what they would call the Hebrew Bible. And so they would learn those things in addition to learning the uh, interpretations of the oral Torah and, and learning how to make their own interpretations and their own applications of, of Torah. And they'd go through what was called Beth Midrash. Now, finally, a uh, very few, a uh, select, the most outstanding Beth Midrash students would then go on to seek permission to study with the famous rabbi. And then they would leave home. They'd, they'd travel with this rabbi for a longer period of time, usually for many years, living every moment with this rabbi. Now, these students were called Talmud. Or if there's a group of students following a rabbi, the, the, the plural form would be Talmudim, which is, which is the Hebrew word that we would translate disciple or disciples. And the idea of a, of a Talmud is, is really so much more involved than what we would just simply call a student. You know, like a, a student in a class uh, simply just wants to, to go to the class and, and know what the teacher knows or know what the teacher wants in order to get a certain grade or, or get a degree or just get through the class. Whereas a Talmud, a Talmud wants to be exactly like the teacher. He wants to literally become what the teacher is. And so in order to do, to, to, to do that, uh, the Talmudim, these followers, these disciples, they were passionately devoted to their rabbi. The relationship between them and the rabbi was, was really intense. It was a very personal form of education. That's why Talmudim would, would live with their rabbi. They would shadow their rabbis every moment for an extensive period of time, again, for years you know, as the rabbi lived and taught his understanding of scripture, his, his Talmudim, his disciples, they, they would listen and they would watch him and they would imitate him so that they could become like him. I mean, this was an all-consuming relationship. And so when Jesus is called rabbi twice, twice in this passage, this is the cultural context of what it meant. Not only to be a rabbi, but what it meant to be a faithful follower, a, a Talmud. And so Jesus, as he's walking through Bethany, where John the Baptist was baptizing, as he's in Galilee, as he's gathering followers, it's what these young men, Andrew, Simon, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, it's what they're being called into. It's what they're being invited into. And you need to understand these young men, these young men that were being invited into this relationship with Jesus, they, they had probably already gone through Beth Safer, and maybe they had gone through Beth Midrash, but that was it. At this point in time in their lives, they had all sought other occupations. Even if as young boys, they had hopes of becoming a Talmud underneath a rabbi, those dreams were probably long, long gone. Now that's not to say that, again, these guys didn't know Torah. It's not to say that these guys didn't know the scriptures. It's not to say that these guys were dumb, but, but, but they weren't the best. They weren't the brightest. Uh, these young men, they, they, they weren't the valedictorians. They didn't graduate top of the class. They had already moved on. They'd already picked up their family's trades or, or new vocations. And so to be invited though, to be invited by this Jesus of Nazareth, to be one of his disciples, 
It would have been seen as a serious honor, something worth dropping everything for. And that's something else worth pointing out. Not only were these guys getting a second chance at something great that they thought was a dead dream, they were being personally invited by Jesus. You see, typically back then, a family of, of, of a bright, promising student, they would seek out the rabbi and they would ask the rabbi and then the rabbi would approve whether or not that individual could follow him. But rarely, if ever, did the rabbi go out and seek the student personally. And yet here Jesus was hand-selecting his Talmudim from those who had been overlooked, from those who had been discarded even. So I hope that as you understand this, you're already starting to see the connections to your own life personally here. First of all, you don't have to be someone special to be one of Jesus's followers. The young men who Jesus picked, they were not the brightest ones in their class. And in the same way, We don't have to be particularly special to be faithful followers of Jesus. In fact, time and time again, you see throughout God's word that he uses those who are weak. He uses those who are hurting. He uses those with messed up pasts, those who would be typically overlooked. Jesus loves us as we are and he chooses us just the same. And so if we've been invited and we have to follow Jesus, would we see it as an honor and a privilege to devote ourselves to to learning him, to learning his ways, to becoming exactly like him? And secondly, I think even more importantly, would we understand that being a faithful follower of Jesus is more than just a brief weekend activity, something that just takes a couple hours of our time? It's so much more than that. It is a life-consuming decision. You know, when a Talmud followed his rabbi, it wasn't for one two-hour weekend class where he got coffee and donuts. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but listen, it was a life-transforming journey. It influenced every moment of the follower's life. And it wasn't just to learn some interesting doctrinal facts about the Torah. His time spent with the rabbi was also to learn the rabbi himself, to learn his way of life, to, to, to learn how he lived the Torah out, to become just like him. You see, that's what it meant to be a faithful follower. Is that what you are? Are you a faithful follower? And you know, Jesus communicates this directly. He communicates this call directly and personally in the passage in verse 43, when he finds Philip in Galilee. He simply says those two words. He says, follow me, follow me. In the Greek, the word here is akoluthe which is a verb in the imperative form, which means it's a command. But not only is it a command, it's in the present active tense, which means that this command, follow me, is is to be followed indefinitely. And so it's not just a one and done decision to follow and I put my stake in the sand and I'm done and I'm set and I'm arrived and I can mail it in. No, it's an active, ongoing, perpetual command. If we were to translate it uh, uh, more faithfully to the text more literally, a better rendering would be keep following me. Keep following me. And you see, church, this is what we are commanded to do, to keep following Jesus, even when it gets difficult, even when we feel like we aren't experiencing God the way we want or hearing from him as clearly as we once did. It it, it doesn't matter. We are called simply to be faithful followers of Jesus who keep following him and learning him and loving him and devoting our lives to him, imitating him and becoming like him. You know, let's not, let's not be fair weathered in our discipleship and our following of Jesus. Let's not be like those Cubs fans that jumped on board in 2015. Let's not get distracted by mere good things, but would we keep our eyes on the greatest thing and leave those other things behind? You know, it can be difficult to follow Jesus. 
And, and even though it can be difficult to, to, to follow him faithfully, especially during times like these, listen, I, just, I, I wanna encourage you that there are some wonderful, awesome benefits to following him as well. And I wanna spend just the brief few moments we have here at the end, looking at some of Jesus' first followers and encouraging you through them right now. You know, first of all, when I faithfully follow Jesus, I'm given a new identity. When I faithfully follow Jesus, I'm given a new identity. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. You know, before meeting Jesus, Peter's name was, was Simon and he was a hardworking fisherman. That's what he did. But after meeting Jesus, Jesus changed his name and he gave him a new name, Cephas, which is the Aramaic word for Peter. And this name, Peter, it means rock. And later on in a different story, Jesus explains why he named Peter this. He named Peter, he named him Peter. He named him Rock because he was going to build his church on Peter, on this rock. You see, in this moment, Jesus gave Simon a new identity. And when you follow Jesus, you get a new identity. You're no, you're no longer defined by your past, whether it was messy or great. You're no longer defined by your job or your lack thereof. You're, you're no longer defined by your education or your bank account or your future prospects. Your identity is found in, it's secured in, and it's given to you by Jesus himself. You know, you, you can look at a passage like Ephesians 1. It says that your identity, that you are an adopted child of God, that you are redeemed by Jesus' blood, that you're forgiven of all your mistakes and sins, and nothing, nothing can change that identity. Nothing can take that identity away from you because it says you have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When I faithfully follow Jesus, I'm given a new identity. And not only that, when I faithfully follow Jesus, I have purpose in my life. I have purpose in my life. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael, he said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And so, you know, I was looking and it's unclear throughout the gospels what Philip's occupation was, uh, you know, before this. And we have really no idea if it was fulfilling or if it gave his life meaning or purpose, but regardless of what it was or how it impacted his life, after encountering Jesus, his life was changed. And it was driven by this new purpose. He had encountered the greatest thing. He had encountered Jesus Christ and he couldn't but help and tell others about him. And you see, hopefully the, the same is true of us too, that when we faithfully follow Jesus, our lives, regardless of what we do or where we live or how old we are, that our lives are now imbued with this meaning, with this purpose. You know, we are called to live our life on a mission, a mission to share with others the greatest news of Jesus Christ. 
And when we see Jesus rightly, when we see him for who he really is, when we view him as the greatest, we will gladly leave behind those other good things in order to share with others about this Jesus. And listen, there is no greater joy to be had in this world than to see other people's eyes opened to the greatness of Jesus Christ because you simply said to them, like Philip did, even when they're skeptical, even when they doubt, even when they show no interest, and you just said to them, hey, come and see, come and see. When I faithfully follow Jesus, I have, I have purpose in my life. And finally this, when I faithfully follow Jesus, I am fully known and fully loved. I am fully known and fully loved. Look at verse 47. Jesus, he saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. You know, Nathaniel, um, he initially expresses doubts and skepticism about Jesus. Can anything good come from Nazareth? However, after meeting Jesus and encountering him and, and seeing in that moment that, that Jesus knew him perfectly in ways that a mere man couldn't know him, in a way that only God could know him, his eyes were opened. His eyes were opened to who Jesus really was. And in that moment, in verse 49, in essence, he just begins to worship him. And then Jesus responds and, and he makes, what he does there is he makes the first promise to a follower of Jesus in the scriptures. All of this given to someone who was initially doubtful and skeptical about Jesus. You see, there should be a lot of encouragement here for us. Jesus sees you. Jesus is big enough for your doubts. He's big enough for your questions. He's, he's big enough for your skepticism. He's hardly offended by them. He can handle them and he sees you and he knows you and he loves you and he, and he calls you out to, to, to live a life with him, to live a life for him. Life where you're not only fully known and fully loved like, like Nathaniel was, but again, a, a life that's full of purpose, a life that has this new unshakable identity. You see, for some of us, this is a life that we were invited to be a part of many, many years ago. But, but we've since gotten distracted. Sometimes we've been distracted by legitimately good things. But, but would today, would, would, we be, would we be reminded in this moment right now of our greatest calling to faithfully follow this rabbi from Nazareth, Jesus Christ, the, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the King of Israel, the Son of Man, the Son of God? Would God give us the grace and strength to keep following him, even when it's difficult? even when we're tired, even when others fall away, even if we've gone through a season where we've personally been distracted. Remember, if I want to go after the greatest thing, sometimes I have to leave good things behind. And listen, Jesus is the greatest thing and he's worth leaving everything behind. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity found in your word. Right now, we pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength and the grace to leave behind good things so that we would follow after Jesus, the greatest thing. Even if we've gone through a season where we've been distracted by other things, Lord, would you help us to fix our eyes on you? Would you remind us, Lord, of the benefits of following after Jesus, our new identity, our purpose, God, 
And would you remind us that we are fully known and fully loved as we are. We thank you that you change us, that you transform us. And as we faithfully follow you, would you mold us to become more like you, Jesus, our rabbi, our teacher, our Lord, and our savior. We pray this in your powerful name, amen.